Stand, if you would, for the reading of the word. We're in the gospel of Matthew chapter 2, the dozen verses that we'll read of the story of the trip of the wise men, the magi, to come to see Jesus. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen in it rise, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the Lord was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. These episodes that make up the birth narratives of Jesus are each one put in there by the gospel writers for a particular purpose. Uh, what we read about it, our call to worship was when the the great light and the angels appeared to the shepherds. And the shepherds then went to Bethlehem upon the very night of Jesus' birth to worship him. Well, that was encapsulating a number of things that the Old Testament promised. One, that Jesus was the son of David. He was a descendant of David. He was from David's hometown, Jesse's plantation that had been left there. All through the years, for about a thousand years, they'd continued to raise sheep on those plains. And the shepherds came, thereby symbolizing that the king, the leader of Israel, would be a descendant of David, and he would be like David, a shepherd. In fact, not only David was a shepherd and king, but every leader that Israel had 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 been a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac, Jacob, they were all shepherds. God leads his people by shepherding them. And this fulfilled passages in, in uh, Ezekiel, and in 2 Samuel, and a number of places, the shepherds coming there. And there they were, kneeling before the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so we have a similar story now. We have the story of the Magi. And the visit of the Magi is really strange because we don't really know a lot about the Magi. And I love when I come to a place in Scripture where we have real scant information because my imagination just runs wild. 
And I enjoy filling in all the blanks that I possibly can fill. And so today what I'm going to tell you is what I believe to be probably what occurred, but I can't be bulldogmatic about it because we don't know for sure. The scriptures are silent, but there's some pretty good indicators. You're very familiar with the story of these wise men, these magi that came from the east. Doesn't tell us who the magi are. It doesn't tell us where the east is. But we have a pretty good indication because you see, for years, God's people, 500 years earlier, had been in captivity in Babylon. And God had destroyed Jerusalem and taken large numbers of the people. And they had stayed in Babylon for 70 plus years. And some of them, only a minority of them, returned back to Jerusalem in the late uh, 7th century, 6th century. And as they come back to, to uh, Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls. You know about Nehemiah and Ezra and all those great stories that happened. But what you don't realize, and secular history fills in the gaps here, is that a large number of the Jews stayed behind. And they stayed behind with a tremendous amount of influence on this particular culture. Particularly one guy, if you study the life and the ministry of the prophet Daniel, Daniel in the Old Testament, he's the last of the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel actually lived in Babylon, was a prime minister, a first-hand servant to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar, and then he stayed on for successive generations. And Daniel is a fascinating book. In fact, the, the scriptures tell us in Daniel 5.11 that uh, he was able to interpret for Belshazzar the handwriting that God put upon the wall that was a, a message of judgment upon the Babylonian empire. And he was called in by the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, and she told Belshazzar about this, and Daniel interpreted that dream. And as a result of that, Belshazzar made, let me just go to the book of Daniel. It's a whole lot easier to read the Bible than it is to talk about it sometimes, isn't it? Let me just see if I can find it here real quick. I thought I had it marked. Yeah, there it is. In Daniel 5, listen, it says, um, the, the, the queen mother says, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, that's Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magi, the magicians, enhancers, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, a spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. And they let Daniel be called and he showed them the interpretation. Here's the pivotal point. This man, Daniel, became very important, not only in this particular administration, but in subsequent administrations. And there's a bunch of visions, and the book of Daniel is just absolutely fascinating to read. There's, but there's two or three prophecies that are very, very significant out of the book of Daniel. And one is about future empires. Daniel had a vision from the Lord that the Babylonian empire would soon come to an end. In fact, it would come to an end in the days of Belshazzar. And then there would be subsequent empires, and they're, they're listed. And history tells us this is exactly what happens. Daniel here, 500 years before, is giving the prophecy of what would happen in the next five centuries. That's a pretty good prophet. That's somebody you would pay attention to. 
And he talked about the Medes and the Persians, and we read about them in the Old Testament as well. And then they would be taken over by the Greeks. Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great, his son, would, would conquer and would the world. So that's another great empire. And then that empire would not be taken over by another empire, but it would dissolve into four at the death of Alexander the Great. It would dissolve into four great empires. And these four great empires would rule over the world for a period of time. And then there would come another empire. And this was the empire of Rome. And this is described in Beast. And so, but something happened to the Roman Empire. The fifth great empire was that it was characterized by a great character, a colossal image. And a strange little video went through this vision. And that was that there was a stone out of a huge mountain. And that stone was hewn out, but not with human hands. And that stone came rolling down the mountain. And as it rolled down the mountain, it hit the feet of that final creature, that final beast, that final big image who had feet of clay. That's where that comes from. And it crushed the feet and the empire crumbled. And that stone then grew into a great kingdom that ruled for the rest of eternity. Pretty remarkable story and prophecy. And it stuck. This is the sort of thing these men, these wise men, these, these astrologers and astronomers and, and counselors to the kings, they continued in this guild. And these 500 years of prophecy were beginning to unfold. There was another particular prophecy that is extremely uh, important in Daniel's uh, Prophecy. It's found in chapter 7, and I'll just read the, the he describes all the background to the uh, um, prophecy, and it resembles a lot of what Ezekiel saw uh, with the thrones and the chariots and so forth. But listen, listen to this little part here. This is Daniel describing his, his vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given the glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's a prophecy of the kingdom of God with Christ as the king. But let's distinguish quickly. If you study ancient worlds and peoples and a good portion of the Old Testament, most of the time kings were leaders of an ethnic group or a small geographic region. They were in charge of just so much is about all they could handle. Prior, there'd been sort of an indication of this with the Assyrians, but before this time of Daniel, you had not seen worldwide empires. An empire is not just a king over his people. An empire is a king over the kings. And that's what you see in world history spelled out in these prophecies of Daniel. You see this notion of a king He's certainly a king of one particular ethnic nationality, one particular country, but he's a king of all the kings. He's a king over the kings. And that is precisely 
who Jesus Christ is. He is that superior king of the kings. He's the one that is over all the kings of the earth. And we see that was part of the expectation even in the days of, of, uh, of Israel. Over and over the Jewish expectation had been in Isaiah 6, the government would be upon his shoulder. In Psalm chapter 2, he says, ask of me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. You remember even in the temptation, Satan knew something about Jesus' mission and in that temptation, he took Jesus up to a high place, a high mountain. It's interesting how many mountains figure into kingdoms. He took him up on a high, high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world, Satan told Jesus, all this can be yours. That's what Jesus came to do, was to make all of this his. Satan had a temptation, though, you bow down and worship me, and I, who currently, as the great dragon and the great beast, I am ruling these kingdoms. I'm controlling them. I'm influencing them. They're under my sway and under my dominion and my thraldom. And Jesus did not take that temptation. Instead of serving the Lord, he said, you serve God because God will give me, Jesus knew, his father would give him the kingdoms of the world. And so we see this notion of kingdom of God starting to flesh out in the Bible. Do you have any idea how many times the word king or kingdom or a couple of closely related words are used in the pages of the Bible? I looked it up about three o'clock this morning because I wanted to be sure. <laughs> I got my youngs out and just counted. And almost 5,000 times. There's something to this notion of the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus started his ministry. He's preaching. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus ends his ministry just before his ascension. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go and disciple to discipline the nations teaching them to observe the things that I have commanded you. I, the king of kings, have commanded you. Now, these magi had been studying all this stuff. A guild, a literature had built up. Expectations had built up. And now these magi from the east had seen a star rising. Way back in the book of Numbers, there was a prophet called Balaam. And about all we remember about Balaam was how his donkey talked to him. But there's a whole lot more to the ministry. We did a Bible series over here a few years ago I did with our senior adults and it was on the ministry of the prophet Balaam. We had five sermons on Balaam, his prophecies. And one of them was, he said that he would see a star, a star would rise. Couldn't see it yet, wasn't clear. But like so many visions in the Old Testament, there were the outlines and the contours and just the flickering moments of it. A star would rise and that would be the great sign, the great signal that the king of the earth, the stars in the Bible often represent kingdoms. In fact, we see that on our star. Our flag, the United States flag, has stars representing states. The communist Chinese flag has stars on it. The Texas, the better flag of all of them, has one star. But the stars is a sign of something rising, a rising kingdom. We see stars falling in the, in the Bible visions. That's kingdoms coming down. That's dominions falling. 
This is what God, the sovereign ruler of the universe does. He causes kingdoms to rise and he causes kingdoms to fall. He did that in Israel with Saul and David and Solomon and all the rest of them. He raised them up. He brought them down. God is sovereign and he gives us some notion of this great sovereignty. We don't see it because we have tunnel vision. We live in right here in one little place on one little speck on the earth within one little flicker of time. We're living in a nanosecond with respect to eternity and that's all we can see. But We've got to be like the Magi and look down to the distant future in time. Look even over into the corridors of eternity. Our vision needs to be open and expanded. We need the star to rise in our lives in the light. Now, some have speculated about what this star was. We've had an interesting little phenomenon with Jupiter and Saturn this week, an alignment. This took place within two years of what they think was the birth of Christ. And it's an interesting story there. But, and that could be what the star was. It could have been this uh, alignment of those two planets. In fact, the planets are called in, in ancient astronomy, they're called wandering stars. They know they're not stars, but they're wandering stars. They're lights in the heavens. Once again, we don't know. I like to fill in the blanks. I, I think the star they saw was, the, was, a, was a, just a flicker of the Shekinah glory of God. Over and over and over in the Bible, we find the glory of God revealed. That was the, the, the light that shone around the shepherds was the glory of God. His presence and His glory being known. Him being enshrouded in light. Light hides God. God is light. And His Son, of course, is the light of the world. So these, these excellent metaphors that, that can be brought to physical appearance, whatever it was, they saw it, they thought they knew what it meant, and they launched out on an 800-mile trip down the Euphrates River Valley and all the way across the Fertile Crescent, 800 miles from the east to Jerusalem, several months travel. And they come to King Herod. Now, I don't want to get too far off track because we could talk about King Herod for a long time, but Herod was the king of Judea. He had been put there by the Romans. He was a puppet king. He wasn't even a Jew. In fact, it's worse than that. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. Whereas the Jews were descended, of course, of Israel, of Jacob. And there was a tension there, always a tension there. And Ken, this petty potentate, Herod, saw the threat. He was just enough of a believer. He had just enough of paranoia to understand the threat. And so he, as you know the story well, tried to get the Magi to show him where Jesus was so that he could worship him too. But actually, it was that age-old battle. We see it in the Garden of Eden with the snake. We see it with David and Goliath. We see it over and over in the Scripture. We see it with Moses and Pharaoh. And here we see it again. Herod and Jesus. Jesus, the newborn king the true, authentic king of the Jews who was to go on to become the king of the kings. And so he contemplated another small holocaust to slaughter the infants in and around 
Bethlehem over a period of within two years. He was used to that. He had slain two of his ten wives. He had killed three of his twelve sons. Herod was used to killing people. He tried to take Jesus out right there. And of course the Lord warned him in a dream. Eventually we know Jesus went down to Egypt to escape. And here we have these men who understood the times, who understood the things of God's future and God's prophecy. No doubt devout men, religious men, brilliant men, seeking, open to what God is doing, anxious to see the fulfillment of it. They come, they find Jesus. He's now in Bethlehem. He's in a house. He's not in the manger anymore because some time has passed by. We don't know if they rode camels or not. Uh, it, we have to have them in the manger scene, so we put them there. There is a passage in the Old Testament that talks about dromedarians coming from afar. So that may have been a fulfillment of that particular passage. But they come and the scriptures say they with great joy. The star led them. That's why I think it might have been the Shekinah glory of God as opposed to planets, planets in the heavens. But they were led by the presence of the light. And they saw Jesus, tiny little Jewish baby, newly dedicated, newly circumcised, brand new little baby boy. And the scripture says that they fell down and worshiped him. They did what they knew they needed to do in light of who Jesus was. It wasn't just that the light had guided them, the light had illuminated them so that they can see Christ, this little baby boy, for who he really is. And if I were a preacher, I'd stop right here and preach a little bit. I would talk about how at the light of God is what shows us what we need to know about Christ. He shines the spotlight upon Christ where we see him for who he is because in the secular world today, Jesus is maligned as a deranged person and all kinds of uh, historical Christ. But when the light of the glorious gospel beams down and our eyes are opened, and our blind eyes see, we see Jesus for who he is. Little tiny baby there in this manger in this little village, 800 miles from home. They saw what they saw. They saw the Savior. And they worshiped. They didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship Joseph. They weren't in a temple anywhere. But they were bowing before the true temple. The Lamb of God. The King the king of the Jews and the king of the kings. And they brought gifts. And I know you've heard about these gifts all your life, but they were roughly gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're highly symbolic. We can talk about them. We don't have time. But the gold is indicative of royalty and temple splendor. Palaces and temples are overlaid with gold in the Old Testament. His royalty he is that Davidic king. He's that promised one. It's him. The frankincense, incense. In Exodus 34, we read about incense being used in the worship of the Lord, the rising of the prayers, the lifting up of the calling upon the Lord, the beginning of worship, the prayers of the saints. Incense represents 
his divinity, his desert of divine worship, and then the myrrh. Myrrh is a burial ointment. It denotes his humanity. Jesus was born with a body, a human body, a full, full complement of DNA of homo sapien, man. In order that he might die the death that was placed upon the species in Adam when Adam sinned. And that he might thereby save the race. It's interesting throughout the rest of Jesus' days, these men worship, these shepherds worship, these magi worship. They went back to their occupations. But the whole Jewish dynasty, the men that had come together there to advise King Herod on where the scripture was in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that talked about Bethlehem where the king would be born. They sought, the Bible says over and over, they sought to kill him. That's what they wanted to do with Christ. They wanted to kill him. Now, I have a minute or two left and, and I want to spend what time I have here for a moment just trying to apply this a little bit uh, and answer some maybe some questions. Jesus is a king, king of kings. But what kind of a king? What kind of a kingdom? Well, it's a real kingdom. It has power, authority, a law code, justice, righteousness. Rules with a rod of iron. Bringing and keeping the peace. Destroying enemies. The Bible says that Jesus will destroy every enemy of his. And let me suggest two ways in which Jesus destroys enemies. And you're an enemy of Christ. The Bible says we're at enmity. That we're alienated, that we're far away, that we're cut off, that we're lost. All we like sheep have gone astray. You're an enemy of Christ. And Christ is going to conquer you. In one of two ways. The first way is the way I hope it works with you. And that is that Jesus turns his enemies into his friends. He turns his enemies into his brothers and sisters. He turns his enemies into his disciples. That's the best way to have the Lord conquer you. To come and overcome all of your objections, all of your sin all of your hostility, all of your reluctance, all of your distance, all of your messed up everything, overwhelm it with all the graces that he brings and brings you into the fold as an enemy. I mean, as a, from an enemy to a friend. And you become a loyal subject. And this is what Christ did in his first advent. In his first advent, he came with respect to dealing with sin. He lived a sinless life. He died an atoning death. He rose from the grave victorious over sin. He dealt with sin in his first advent. The Bible tells us that the righteousness of God, the, the justice, the kingliness of God has been revealed from heaven. 
And it's been revealed in the gospel. So what are you to do? You're to do what Jesus said do. You are to repent and believe the gospel. The gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And when that happens, you're no longer his enemy. You're now an heir of the kingdom. We talk about building the kingdom, extending the kingdom. Those, those things are not in the Bible. Entering the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom. That's what the Bible talks about. We come into that which God has already established and inaugurated. But there's another way Jesus destroys his enemies. And I don't even hardly want to talk about it, but I, and that is he crushes them under his feet. When you live a life of antipathy and hostility to Christ, when you ignore him, when you curse him, when you deny him, when you do everything to let God Almighty know you won't have nothing to do with Christ, then finally, God gives you your wish and you come under the rod of iron and the crushing destruction. The Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's not only that the grace of God and the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and against all those that have sinned. Let me just point out here just one little place. There's about four of these passages that read almost the same in the Bible. This is one of them. This is Paul writing. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor cheaters or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're one of those in that sin and you die in your sin, you never confess, you never repent, you never come to Christ for forgiveness, you never trust his atoning death to pay the price and the penalty for your sin, you will be under the wrath of God. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And at his second advent, his coming again, he'll take care of you. There'll be a judgment. There'll be a great assize. There'll be some evidence brought against you. There'll be a verdict. There'll be a sentence. There'll be a punishment. And it'll be for all eternity. Well, we know it's a real kingdom. It's a kingdom that has to do with spiritual truth. It's an eternal kingdom. It starts with the coming of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement. And by the way, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of Christ, thrice lifted up according to Isaiah, is his coronation, his enthronement. He's seated at the right hand of God. 
Sit at my right hand, the Father said, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And there Christ reigns. There's a lot of confusion about the kingdom of God, a lot of debate about certain features. Is it spiritual or is it literal? Is it earthly or is it heavenly? Is it for a fixed period of time or is it eternal? And the answer to all those questions is yes. There's dimensions of all of that in the kingdom of God. My final question to you today will center around the kingdom. The king of that fifth empire, the one that will be broken by the great stone is the Roman Empire. We still live, by the way, today in the residual of the Roman Empire. We're still a Romanized, Latinized culture in the West. And Jesus was asked one time about obeying Caesar. And he said, bring me a coin. And they brought him a coin. And whose image was stamped on the coin? It was Caesar's. And Jesus said, well then render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. What we didn't hear was the implications of the conversation. Bring me yourself. Whose image is stamped on you? God's. Then give yourself to God. Let Caesar take care of the Cohen. Let Caesar take care of the tax code. Let Caesar take care of mammon. You belong to God.